Welcome to the Beer Shits Podcast. Come and talk about beer, yeah. We are women. We love beer. We're talking about beer, yeah. We don't make any sense. <laughs> You're listening to the Beer Shits Podcast. This is your host, Mel Tini. And your other host, Amy Bosco Sticks. So why the name change? Well, I thought it was time. <laughs> you just decided to go put in some paperwork. Yeah, make it legal. I've been called that for so long. I thought, why not just change it? I mean, it's a good nickname. It's pretty good. Tell us the, a little bit of the background. Well, my real last name is Bostick. And in high school, I, I don't, was it Fridays? I feel like it was the same day of the week every week we had Bosco Sticks yeah. for lunch. And I was not a big buy your lunch from school fan except on Bosco Sticks days. And I guess somebody made the correlation that Bosco sounds like Bostick. So <laughs> I got the name. They are delicious. I don't know if I told you, I was at a hospital recently and they had mm-hmm. them. I don't think I've had them since high school. I would be very interested to have them again. Do they taste as good as we remember? It was exactly like how I remember. Bread with some cheese in the yes. middle. And some marinara Dip it in some marinara. Yep. I mean, it's like the simplest fucking combination, but so good. Carbs on carbs on carbs on carbs. Yeah. It's basically like cheesy breadsticks, right? Right. Yeah. Um, you've got to have other nicknames. I mean, you're 34 years old. <laughs> you're telling me you've only had one nickname in your whole life? When your first name's three letters long... <laughs> I think people don't tend to think you need one. The only other one I can think of is A-Boss, which is my first initial, my first name in the last three letters of my last I first mean, three letters You're of my just last so name. eccentric and annoying. I can't imagine that other people haven't. They know. just equate that with Amy. Just Amy? Yep. That's the worst thing they could call you, <laughs> Amy. Oh, no, I've been called many worse <laughs> things, but I wouldn't say they're nicknames. <laughs> oh, my God, I what about you? Tell me about Maltini. Because what I envision when I say Maltini is like a nice martini cocktail with your face floating around inside. Yeah. Um, I've had actually a lot of nicknames throughout my life. Missy was the first one. I feel like everyone that had the name started with an M. Michelle, Melissa, Morgan. I don't know. I just came up with that. Maureen. was either Missy or Moo Moo. It's like those two. Interesting. I got Missy. But then... I got Satan for a while. <laughs> Saban. Satan. Actually, no, that's not true. Actually, that's not true. I got Medusa for a while for my brothers who were assholes. <laughs> See, and I didn't go up with siblings either. Yeah. So I have that advantage. So Medusa and then Satan, which is a good story. We were both in new newspaper together mm-hmm. our junior year. And my our English teacher brought me in like mid-semester. And she introduced me as Saban. Mm-hmm. And then Joe Rehagen came up to me later and was like, why does she keep calling you Satan? And I was like. <laughs> the importance of enunciation. <laughs> <laughs> or listening. <Joe>. Or listening. <laughs> and I was like, I'm pretty sure I was actually wearing my volleyball shirt that said Satan <laughs> on the back. Wait, was your hair long? Did it cover it? I'm trying to give Joe the benefit of the doubt, okay? He was a delight. <laughs> So yeah, so then I was Satan for a while, and then um, yeah, I went without a nickname for a long time till I was in DC. Then I was Motown. Mm-hmm. I like that one a lot. So I we'll have to get we'll have to have a whole different podcast intro where we talk about Urban Dictionary entries. Okay, because that one that could be a fun conversation. Yeah, that one takes the cake. I got Meltini from my I'm gonna call it. He was like the equivalent of a work husband. Okay. Um, and he was just a cool guy. So his name's Roscoe. And I don't know where he came up with it. I mean, in Dubai, there wasn't a lot of beer. So I did drink a lot more cocktails and wine. But one day they came up with Meltini and it just stuck. And now it's my Twitter and my mm-hmm. Instagram. Untapped. <laughs> I thought about putting it on my license plate. <laughs> my guess is you got that nickname because you're often drunk. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think Lush is the way they put there we it. There go. <laughs> Much prettier. Much prettier. <laughs> yeah, I like Lush a little bit. Although it has like some promiscuous right. connotations to it. But I'd rather be called a drunk, I think, than a Lush. Really? I don't know why. I don't it's a, it's the connotation in the mind. See to me Lush means, means the like same thing. party girl. Oh, okay. But drunk is like I you know, sad. <laughs> <laughs> sad. I think what we're learning here is one word can have several different interpretations. I think we should give you a new nickname. Okay. That should be what we okay. do. Okay. All right. So let me think of something. Um, I called you one the other day, and I think we could just stick with it. Runner tits. 
avid runner. I prefer Baywatch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's fine. But, like, you run. I'd rather runner tits. You, you... Runner tits is just so vulgar. I'd rather have Baywatch. Really? Your mom's nickname is Tits McGee. <laughs> right. Not mine. <laughs> um, okay. Well, let me think a little bit more about okay. your nickname. But in the meantime, I say let's talk to our guest who herself has quite a good nickname. It's uh, pretty uh, exciting. Hey, did you know we like to talk? No? Well, we do. And we don't stop when we're not recording. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Beer Shits Podcast or Twitter at Beer Shits KC. You can also head to our website at www.beershitspodcast.com to check out our upcoming guests, news, and browse our merch. We are talking to the bona fide beer floozy, Rebecca Newman. She's currently director of quality at Lagunitas. She's a senior consultant for the alcohol, cannabis, and beverage industries. Uh, she's actually trademarked the moniker beer floozy, which we'll get to. Um, and yeah, you have got quite a long history in the beer industry. Look, I mean, from what we can see, starting in 85 with Anheuser-Busch, you worked in Saki, Sierra Nevada, Boston Beer Company, Dogfish Head. I mean, it's like we're with a, we're, we're with a living legend. It's a celebrity. <laughs> yeah. We feel very honored. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. I, I am so happy you guys called me. I don't even mind talking during vacation. I think this is <laughs> awesome just to hang out with women talking about beer mm-hmm. and women talking about all the things that make good beer even better. And it's our mission to get you shit-faced by the <laughs> end of this podcast. I've got I've got three cans to go, so let's get <laughs> going. Awesome. Okay, so to get started, since we're talking about drinking, um, I'd love to talk about what we're drinking. We did choose some Lagunitas. You're also drinking a Lagunitas. I am. I'm having something that's called Hazy Wonder. I'm drinking out of a 12 ounce can. It's got beautiful spring colors and the dog on the front. Um, And it's a straw colored hazy beer with a beautiful white rocky foam head. Um, It sports uh, flavors of citrus, sunflower seeds, uh, kernels, apricot, a little bit uh, tropical, goes down way too easy. So uh, (laughs) it's a great spring day for a great spring beer. So we're drinking the drinking the Lagunitas Stereohopic IPA. This is the first in a uh, volume series. And what it says on the label is it's channeling their 25 plus year hop love affair on a spotlight on two special varietals at a time. And the interestingness, I love that word, that occurs between them. The first volume shows what happens when New Zealand's citrus mangoey specialty Nelson Savon and one of Yakima's heavy hitters mosaic get together yep so you said you got a little bit of a backstory behind this yep. you want to share yeah so it's really great we have uh you know internally we call him the brewmaster but our brewmaster uh, jeremy marshall is just uber hophead uh, super duper creative and when marketing came um to him with a request for three beer series um he said well you know everybody's done the single malt single hop what if we do a stereo hop, two hops, and um, look at how they play well together and give the consumer the brightest hop experience possible? He went with the Nelson Savant and the Mosaic, and it is a super bright, almost um, Sauvignon Blanc-like, lemon peel, lime peel, um, mango-y, I mean, it just effuses all these New Zealand bright hop notes that are specific to that uh, variety of hop. And then it goes well with the malt back. It's the two-row, uh, North America two-row malted barley. And I see you have your glass, so it's a little bit slightly amber. It's got a beautiful foamy head. Um, I see you rocking in your chair, so hopefully you don't rock too far and go into a fetal <laughs> position. Um but you it's just, so good, it's so drinkable and <laughs> very it drinkable. is reminiscent of the fresh hop beer that we put out the born yesterday once a year. 
And um, since this is a three beer series, um, we are just now getting ready to finish up the second of the series. It's equally as bright, but different. And the combination um, takes you to a different place because everybody wants pine, piney, grapefruit, orange peel. And now we're into some more subtle flavors that are layered. And so with the stereohopic, it's like listening to stereophonic uh, headset where you get multiple layers of the music, you get multiple layers of the hop experience with a really nice malt back, super consumable. I'm watching you just continue to drink it. And I mean, that's what that makes was it so poetic, nice. The way it's that you described so it was literally It's poetic. exactly what's happening in my mouth too. It's amazing. Good deal. So I do want to go back to one of the things I pointed out in your introduction, which um, when we first emailed you to be on the podcast, you actually sent us a screenshot of the definition of a beer (laughs) floozy, which is just like one of my favorite things. And I like, I wish I could use it for myself, but you know what? This is so you, you know, there are very few people who can wear that badge with honor. So Tell me how that came about and what does it mean to be a beer floozy? Yep. Uh, It's it's a fun thing to be really fun. And it's an old world word floozy, which means somewhat of a a fun loving, promiscuous woman um, who's willing to advance her good time going from enjoyment to enjoyment. And when I started my career, imagine it's beer. So you get to right. go from <laughs> one to the next. That's such a good way to put it. Advance her good time. Okay. I love it. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just no, could no, not, no. Do, not say do, do. anything about that. <laughs> do. Um, it, what's, what makes it so fun is that uh, we're all in charge of our ourselves, right? We're all in charge of our own lives, our own destinies. And And what I think is important is that um, when I started the career in beer, I figured I was going to work for that major brewery for 30 years, earn my gold watch, go up the ladder and and be one and done. And it didn't happen that way. I went from beer to sake into craft and found out that I was really good with craft brands and science and speaking the language of a major brewer, but putting the work in to bend methods of analysis and production so that a craft brewer could make a consistently high quality beer. Because when I started, there was no one from a major brewery working in craft. It was all flannel bearded guys, uh, that were home brewers coming into the beer world. So it was like, I got a lot of ribbing from folks for leaving, you know, my steady Eddie and uh, hooking up with these different craft brewers around the country. And you know what? Why not? I mean, life is a bank. Why would you bring a brown bag lunch, right? (laughs) Why wouldn't you try everything on the table? And so I started saying, you know, yeah, I am a little bit of a beer floozy. I do go from brewer to brewer because you know what? Life is too short not to drink as much of the best beer in the world as possible. And beer has taken me around the world. So you bet I am. I own it. I am a beer floozy. Now, do you have a shirt that says beer floozy on it? Because if you don't, I think I know what I'm getting you for Christmas. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> also, I, you're my spirit animal. I just have to put that out there. I think when you replied with that definition, we knew <laughs> that we were destined to interview you. Yeah. If you guys want to go ahead and read what it really is, I'm, I'm happy to share. Because I think there's a lot of us out there and we should own it make it Mm -hmm. powerful. I have the definition. Okay. A woman who has had multiple beer brands and breweries in her portfolio, willing to engage and impact brand owners for improvement and consumer delight. I took the word floozy and I added beer to it and I kept it humorous. In the old days of floozy, the word was promiscuous. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's a 2021 word. I, I think it's empowered and yep. mindful. 
if a woman wants to do things outside what was very Victorian or very quote unquote traditional and she sets her own course, then by golly, she should be able to own it. So I own the fact that I've worked with some of the best breweries in North America. And um, I'm not afraid to say, yeah, they're in my portfolio. I do engage and I do impact brands and I do work to improve and elevate consumer delight. So why not? You heard it here first, people. We're taking back the word floozy. (laughs) (laughs) So talking about your incredible resume, how did you originally get started in this industry? What brought it to you in the first place? I went to UC Davis out here in California and I studied food science and technology. It was in the 80s. And it was all about the power suit and, uh, you know, making tons of money working and corporate living, right? So that was my dream was to dress in these big shoulder pad suits and have this job that was, you know, carried high impact. And I worked for a major corporation and I met um, one of Anheuser-Busch's first women brewmasters uh, while I was at UC Davis. And she liked me. And when I graduated, she asked me, you know, what do you want to do when you graduate? Well, short of working at the pots and pans section at Macy's, I'm like, I want a job that, you know, (laughs) pays a lot of money and and then I work really hard at. And she's like, I think I know a place that can help you out. So uh, lo and behold, I got an interview with Anheuser-Busch. It paved the way for my entry into beer. I started my career in quality. And back then, quality, you had to know brewing and packaging. And so I took every opportunity to work on every new product that came through um, the brewery out of the Fairfield uh, facility. And I got my you know letter from August Bush telling me that he appreciated my participation on this project and that project. And I got recognized for um, being able to track the process well and articulate change and uh, had some really great successes along the way. And that's how I got started. I found out that I really liked engineering. I really liked uh, chemistry. Um, I was good at communicating and articulating um, what was happening, good, good, bad, or indifferent, and being able to work through change. And the big change at that time at Anheuser-Busch was dry beers which were um, filtered, not pasteurized. So that was a big deal way back then. So to understand the impact of having a really clean brewery and what uh, cold filtered beer tastes like as opposed to heat treated or pasteurized beer. So it set me on a a really great trajectory for a, a life in beer. Yeah, you talked about spending time with quality. Quality, So I think for me and other people, I would like to know what that means. To hear it, but to know, like, what do you do? Because I envision, like, microscopes and... Beakers. Beakers. (laughs) Uh, What does that mean for people who might be interested? What interested? Or we're we're thinking about, like, Lucy and, like, the chocolate factory where they're making... You know what I mean? So for for us lay people, what is quality assurance? So when Lucy and Ethel were on the line uh, and you saw that conveyor go by with all those chocolate bonbons and they had to pick out the ones that were a little bit misshapen, too big, too small. And first of all, they were eating them and then it got to go too fast and they started throwing them down their shirt. Um, that's the old, <laughs> that's the old style quality control It's pull it off the line. Don't let it go out the back door. Um, a life in quality is that you move from quality control to quality assurance to continuous improvement and prevention. So quality is the way that you gauge each process or step in brewing from raw materials in through the process of the brew house, sellers, fermentation, packaging, and then out into the world for the consumer. So if you have a love of science, be it physical science, chemical science, life science, microbiology, Quality is a fantastic bridge into the world of not only beer, but food and beverage, because beer is a living entity, and it's only through pasteurization that uh, those 
rich biochemical reactions are suspended. And so that's why craft brewing in the U.S. has storied and wonderful history of being unpasteurized because brewers that started making craft beer um, in the U.S. did not want heat treated beer. They wanted to show that they had the ability to make good beer that was flavor stable out in the market and it wouldn't explode in a bottle or it wouldn't explode in a can. It would it would stay fresh. It would stay flavorful. It wouldn't go turbid or cloudy unless you wanted a hazy beer. Um, for years and years and years, haze was a dilemma for the brewer because it had to do with fermentation uh, issues or malt quality issues. And then suddenly the New England brewers decided that they wanted to put out this really rich, um, very flavorful beer that had this haze that prior times all craft beer worked hard to get out of the package. So you can imagine having to reverse engineer a beer to put haze back in. So that's quality. That's quality in research. That's quality in innovation. And that's quality into the hands of the consumer that creates delight, enjoyment, and return. So if you have a really strong quality program, not just saying I make quality beer, but you have a true quality program, you understand how much effort is put into choosing the right raw materials, choosing the right brewing equipment, choosing the right process path, and then gauging all of that together to the final package out the back. So that's, that's in a nutshell quality. It's all those things that make beer consistent and delight the consumer. I'm sure you get this a lot. So I don't mean to be that basic girl who's going to ask this question, but being in quality doesn't also mean that you are basically a professional beer taster and you get to sample all the beers to make sure that it falls within the beer style. Second part of my follow-up question, do you also carry around a beer wheel? <laughs> Excellent first question. Never <laughs> on the second. I have it memorized. I don't <laughs> She doesn't need to carry Damn it. Damn it. Even that was better. Very short-sighted of me. Uh -huh. I should have known. I should have known. It's all up here. <laughs> So what I tell people, and I've recused myself from being a professional taster and judging because I give my all to the brewery that I'm working with. Um, and yes, I do a lot of tasting. Um, I work with my sensory teams um, around the globe to the point where we taste beer as early as 7 a.m. on team meetings and we call it virtual tasting. And that's something I started doing with um, breweries when I was consulting. Before we had Zoom, before we had Teams, uh, we would just put our phones out and it would be very curated, you know, start here with this beer, move to this beer, this next beer. And we would have PowerPoints uh, on, our, on our laptops and walk through the beers. So the first thing you do is you look, you know, you open the package, you pour the beer, you look at the beer and does it meet your expectation visually? Because most people don't realize that 80% of taste is with your eyes. Um, you're also looking in craft beer for a beautiful foam collar. And a lot of companies rely on strict measurements for all these things. And as you grow, you get to buy those instruments that do all that testing. But there's a lot of breweries that require their tasters to open it, pour it, look at it, smell it, taste it once, taste it twice, taste it three times and actually swallow it so that you get the full mouth feel, right? Because there's different areas in the tongue that taste different, uh, different tastes. Um, there's also the retronasal, which is once you swallow it, it goes up into the nasal passage and you have taste receptors up in your nose, right? Um, for aroma. So you're really only tasting sour, salty, bitter, umami, and some say fat, but I think fat's more of a mouthfeel. Um, what you smell are the aromas of citrus, pine, 
And then if you get into that flavor wheel of citrus, is it lemon? Is it lime? Is it orange? Is it mandarin? Right? Is it lychee? Is it loquat? You know, how bright is it? Is it tangerine? Is it subtle? So there's all those things that happen when you taste beer. You taste it with your eyes, then you taste it with your mouth and your nose. And with your tongue, does it have the right carbonation level? So Sorry, I totally geeked out. I way oh, overstated. Oh, do not what apologize. That, I learned so much. That answered that. the question. The main reason why I wanted to know the answer, my dad keeps telling me if I open a brewery, he wants to be the uh, taste tester. <laughs> and I think he just means to taste beer. So now at least I can have a response of, yeah, if you, if you do some schooling if about the can, actual quality process. If you can respond <laughs> to my questions like Rebecca Newman can, then I'll hire you. you pass. Okay, that's <laughs> my 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 base but no dad i will not pay you to sit in my brewery and drink my beer no i know one of the things that you do is you kind of consult in other industries and it seems like you're involved in a lot of crossover so as consumers we see like all these new trends like tea beers and coffee beers and wine beers and um you know beers aged in different types of barrels and cannabis beers. And I mean, now there's this huge surgence of non-alcoholic styles. What do you think we should be looking out for, um, you know, in terms of trends, but also does this kind of stuff make your job a whole lot harder? It makes my job incredibly complex, um, challenging, interesting, and engaging. So it's probably what keeps me coming back year over year. Um, amazing. I was just talking to a friend who works with um, Highlight uh, Cigar City, and she and I spent time together at Summit Brewing. Again, beer floozy. Been around all from east to west, and now in the Midwest, and now back on the West Coast. And you, you know, you share your stories, you share your passions, and she and I were both talking about. Um, what breweries are challenged with now, and it's not just making beer, it's the consumer has interest in seltzer, kombucha, um, beverages that have an alcohol component and a restorative component, but because of the law, you are not allowed to talk about health benefits of beer. I like the fact that brewers can stretch now beyond just fermenting grain. They can ferment um, other substrates to get the sugar out of and get some really interesting flavors and mouthfeel. Um, there's a lot of science that goes into these other beverages, everything from seltzer to ranch water to kombucha to hybrid, um, and then THC infused beverages. So be clear, cannabis cannot cross the brewery line and beer cannot cross the cannabis production line. So you can't mix the two. Um, at Lagunitas, we make a, a, a beverage called uh, Hoppy Refresher, which is a dry hopped sparkling water. And it's really nice. It could be used with gin as a mixer, um, but it can also be consumed as a non-alcohol um, beverage. And it's, it's really delicious and super refreshing. Um, our friends up the road at Canacraft were really interested in putting out a THC infused hoppy beverage. So never had alcohol, won't have alcohol, can't have alcohol. So um, we worked with them on a dry hopped seltzer type uh, non-alcohol that they infuse with cannabis, um, both THC and CBD. You have to learn, you know, what works well with what. You also have to know microbiology and food safety. Um, you have to understand uh, FDA regulatory, USDA, and TTB. So quality moves from just the science to the compliance. So we end up taking on a lot of um, work to be a resource to our brewers and our Imagineers for what we can do within the brewery or with uh, other partners in collaborations. So yeah, it's exciting times. I mean, 
Well, I think the trends now are that the consumer is looking for something that's a little lower in alcohol, um, highly quaffable or highly consumable, highly smashable. Um, they like to drink it cold. Um, they like a good amount of carbonation, but not an overabundance so that it gushes. Um, so I think that the consumer is driving the brewer to try new things. I think the juicy hazies are coming forward. So you'll have a little less grit in uh, your beer and a lot more flavor. Um, I think the alcohol will, will go down. I don't think the consumer likes alcohol much below 4%, but I think there's a great amount of um, consumer interest in everything from 3.5 to 5.5-ish. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where the consumer likes the quote unquote extreme beers that are 9, 10, 11, 12% alcohol. Um, and those have their place as well. Um, I think that it's going to be very challenging for brewers to come out with a 4.5 beer that has good flavor, good shelf stability, and that the consumer comes back to again and again and again simply because I think a lot of breweries have become somewhat complacent around issues of cleaning, hygiene, and um, recipe management. So their beers all start to kind of taste the same. So as we mentioned in the introduction, you got started in beer in the, in the beverage industry in 85. You have more experience than most people, not only in beverage, but I mean, in craft beer, I mean, craft beer, you know, I know it was around for a long time, but you know, that kind of revolution didn't really happen until like the early 2000s where it started blowing up in the US. Um, I would just love to know from your perspective, kind of seeing that transition, what are the biggest changes that you've seen in the industry um, from then to now? Wow, great question. Biggest change uh, that I've seen, and it's just now really starting to happen, is the brewers that became very successful. So the craft brewers that now would be considered um, regional breweries. So the, the bigger craft is they're looking at beer much more as a business. And that's something that I think that brewers in the early days of craft brewing did not consider. They did not consider themselves um, to be business people, businessmen and women. They looked at themselves solely as brewers and making the best beer mm -hmm. that they could. And now they're looking at issues around supply chain, human relations, or human resources. Um, they're looking at opportunities to optimize their processes and advance other lines within their brewery that before they were, um, I'll, I'll just say the word, very egotistic. I'm not gonna make soda in, in my brewery. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna only make beer. And, and then there was a really difficult time where the folks that did do sodas kept the lights on and those that didn't and needed the volume closed down. So with the pandemic, hopefully, starting to go into our rear view, breweries that have been able to make it through these very difficult times will tend to business and tend to people um, and focus on making great decisions around the types of beers that they make and managing their people as a resource and as a value to what it is they're doing instead of treating people as cogs or pieces of machinery that somebody's in line behind you and can come in and go to work. Um, they look holistically at what they do and how they do it. So again, I think the challenges for most brewers now are recognizing themselves as being business people that are part of their community and part of a giant network within the United States. There are brewers out there that are very cavalier. They're very few 
and they typically don't last very long. And the ones that last and have staying power really put focus on quality. And they also put focus on their people and their process. And the, the one thing that I haven't talked about, but I do need to say a, just a moment of consideration, be safe, just fucking be safe. Understand there's electricity and pressure and slip hazards and ladders and confined space entry and, you know, all those things that make working in breweries one of the most dangerous places to work. Be fucking careful, people, not only with what you're doing, but with what you're making. And so, you know, quality, consistency, but utmost safety. When you left AB and you, you know, I know you were outside of beer, but then you um, moved from sake into the Boston Beer Company. Could you ever have imagined that craft beer would have blown up the way that it did? Did you think that was going to happen? Or was it was like one day yeah. you just sat back and was like, what the fuck? Like I, <laughs> yeah, create, I helped so... create a monster. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I never expected that craft would be the formidable, um, energetic, awesome industry that it is now. Um, I always thought that corporate America was the right America to work within. Um, so fortunately for me, I had my eyes opened and I got to participate early as a pioneer. And it's just been an awesome, awesome opportunity that I am so appreciative of and so thankful of. I think that craft has changed the way Americans consume beer. And I think that um, because of certain breweries, um, they have really captured the imagination and the thirst of the American drinker, the American beer consumer. And I have to give a nod to Sam Adams Boston Beer because they were the first to recognize that you could make a crafted beer and put it into the hands of the consumer from a major brewer's perspective. They were the first to contract brew. So they took up capacity within a lot of the larger breweries that had tank space. And at first that was a dirty little secret, but now it's paved the way for a lot of collaboration with small brewers coming to market. Maybe a larger brewer has capacity that can help them brew their beer and get their brew um, out to market. My next question is to piggyback off of sort of the biggest changes you've seen in the perspective of being a woman in brewing, um, what, what are the biggest challenges you think you faced and how have you overcome them? Cause obviously you're, you've been incredibly successful. That's, uh, I'm singing my <laughs> Helen Reddy song, which one of my young <laughs> colleagues said, who's Helen Reddy. I was like, I am woman, hear me roll, blah, 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 blah. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, By the way, that so, is making it onto the podcast. I was say, we're so. going to end with that song. <laughs> so me personally, I went from being very young and vivacious and girl power all the way to becoming older and vivacious and woman power all the way, simply because it does not matter your size, your gender, your orientation, just be fucking smart. Do your goddamn work. Pay attention. Come to class with a sharp pencil and you will be a part of it. And that's what I have been able to witness and participate. I had a lot of hard days early in my career that I think I navigated well um, simply because I'm still here. Uh, I never, ever used a pink Sharpie because it was girly. And now I write with every color pen I can find. <laughs> and I highlight with abandon. 
And I you think are a that girl that... after Amy's own heart. <laughs> speaking to my soul. So I think that that's, that's the change. Um, I mentor young women in industry and I tell them that same thing, you know, get there on time, maybe a little early, be prepared, do your work, right? And show up with the light inside of you that's fearless and engaging and intuitive and strong and educated because those are the skills that are going to see you through and do more work to understand the business of brewing. Don't just dance on the head of a pin and be technical. That is where growth opportunity is for women in beer is understanding the business, the numbers. Um, I think that if you want to brew, brew. I think if you want to work in quality, work in quality. If you want to be in packaging, you are awesome because you know how to manage not only yourself around equipment, but manage the equipment that puts the beer into the package. And that's another leading opportunity. There are so few women engineers in brewing and women in STEM, um, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. I think that that is where we need to put effort and energy so that we are the future, right? We're over 50% of the population. Hey, grandpa, we're there, right? We got to work. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot to be gained because of what our perspectives are. We also manage the homes, right? We manage ourselves and we like what we like. So I think that we should have a voice in being able to provide for others what works and provide for ourselves. So with all of that, I hope that we start to gain economic prowess. You know, I was beat down by a brewery where I found out that I earn 60% less than the males that I worked with at a leading craft brewery um, and I'm just disgusted with how I was treated and why I left was to pursue more equity, more equanimity, more justice. And um, it took me a long time to figure out that I am worth it and I continue to be worth it. I may not be a shiny penny, but hey, I'm a buffalo nickel. I know my weight and I know my heft. So I think it's important women get it and we get it good. Um, yeah, we're here. We're beer. I almost just started that was crying. Beautiful. So I have goosebumps. <laughs> are there any groups that you've been involved with where women who want to get mentorship and want to get involved can, you know, seek out and, and, and try and get linked up with people like you? Because I think that's so important. So I think in beer, um, there are three stellar organizations for actually, if, um, you know, the American Society of Brewing Chemists uh, is for the nerd girls of the world, Unite. There's Master Brewers uh, of the Americas Association. There's the Pink Boots, uh, which is primarily all women. And I, I got to give Terry Farndorf you know, credit for saying, hey, gals, where are you? We're here. I'm here. Let's get moving. Um, and that's done a lot for social media, for marketing, and for not necessarily the super technical brewers um, and women. And then there's also um, the Brewers Association, where I don't know if there is a specific female-focused uh, subgroup, but I just know that they have diversity in action and they're working very hard to make sure that brewers recognize the impact of women. Um, the brewing industry is, I think, one of the most forward thinking industries um, in the U.S. as well as on the global platform. I, I applaud Heineken 
um, for what they're doing with women in the brewing industry and the opportunities to lift women up in technical positions. Um, I applaud Lagunitas for recognizing diversity and community um, with women. In your career, what has really lit people up? You know, you asked me a question earlier and you talked about your dad being a professional taster, you know, could he get on the docket to taste? And I think one of the things that has really brought brewers, hop growers, maltsters together is tasting, tasting, tasting at the end of the day, what their participation does to beer, what impacts it. And I really got to see the impact of sensory this year when a young woman, Joy Wilson at our brewery in Petaluma. I don't mean to interrupt you, but explain what sensory means for someone who hasn't heard that before. Yep. So sensory is not just tasting beer. Sensory is how it sounds when it opens. What does it look like when you pour it in a glass? What does it smell like as you bring it to your nose? What does it taste like when you get it in your mouth, on your tongue? And what does it taste like when you swallow it and it goes up into the nasal passage so you have that aroma piece? So sensory is that tactile piece of the beer coming out of the package, into the glass, into your mouth, down your throat, and the and the sensation of swallowing. So hopefully... <laughs> That yeah, kind yeah of, that is perfect. That, you know, it's it's the it's the absolute enjoyment of mm-hmm. beer coming out of the package into the glass and down the throat. So hang on, right? One second. I, need to, <laughs> I, I need to get I need some a sensory, sensory break. Okay, it's basically all the senses, yeah. not just tasting it. All of them. It's all. It's not yeah. just and, tasting. And it's so everything. there's a young woman that you know. So there's a young woman that I have the pleasure of working with, Joy Wilson, and we were trying to explain. IPA to lager breweries in Europe. And we will be explaining it to them in Brazil and Mexico as we globalize Lagunitas, the IPA brand. And what she did was she sent them fresh beer and curated a tasting so that they had water and they had beer and they had aged beer and they were able to open it pour it, look at it, smell it, taste it, swallow it, and start to use the words that are shared globally as descriptors for the brand. And we tasted through beers in a way that they had not done that before. Because when you work with global brewers, they rely heavily on data, instrumentation, testing, and methods. And in craft, in the U.S., you rely on your tasters, you rely on your panelists, you rely on your brewmaster and those that sit in on quote-unquote sensory, sensory panel. And we called it virtual tasting. So we started at seven in the morning with our European brewers and tasted through multiple iterations of beer that had been stored at various temperatures and were at various ages and walked them through what it was they were tasting and how the beer is defined over time. And you could just see on their faces suddenly the difference between what fresh beer tastes like and aged beer or heat tortured beer tastes like. And suddenly there was this new and profound agreement that Fresh beer is best beer. (laughs) And Joy got to do that. And it just, it absolutely lit up the panel and lit me up as well. So I think that once you start to understand what sensory is and what fresh beer is and what really delicious beer is, you want your consumer to only have the best experience. Um, We did a little bit of research. And we found out that maybe you like karaoke. You're a little bit of a karaoke oh. fan. 
<laughs> My God. <laughs> and we would just like to talk about that a little bit. So, oh, wow. We got her blushing. I know you can't see us listeners. Are but... you missing karaoke as much as I am? Because oh. I have said repeatedly to her, the first thing I want to do when the world opens back up is karaoke. <laughs> I love Tom Jones. <laughs> I could so our question was going to be, what is your go-to? What's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> Delilah! Oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. That is awesome. <laughs> I, I would not have expected that. No. I didn't know what to expect, but... I cannot believe you knew but that. We hear that you're good, so can you give us a little... Can, we, can you give us a little taste? Tommy, maybe, or? please forgive me. <laughs> But yes, <laughs> I will. Okay. But okay. yes, I will. Three <laughs> beers in. Microphone. Yeah, three beers in. My, 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 Delilah. Why, why, why? That's all I could do. The cats are screaming. That was amazing. <laughs> you don't need Here to do it anymore. Woo! Thank There's you. No Thank you very much. I'm laughing so hard. I'm crying. <laughs> Rebecca, I just want to say thank you so much. This has been a wonderful interview. Um, I, uh, my new goal in life is really to just become a beer floozy. If I could <laughs> grow up and be something, it'd be that. I don't know how you feel, Amy, but. Hashtag aspirations. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag 2022 goals. <laughs> no, we, I've learned a ton from this interview. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective, things you've learned over the years. We feel very honored to have you on our podcast. I love it. Anytime. Beer Shits podcast was created by Melissa Saban and Amy Bostick. Music written and recorded by Nicholas Forster. Contributions made by Marina D. Production assistance and editing by Elijah Hudman. We encourage our listeners to drink responsibly. Be sure to visit our website at beershitspodcast.com to get more information on previous and upcoming episodes and to buy our merch. We look forward to cracking one open with you next time. Over and out. Over and out.